Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. This is Johanna Mellis talking, and I am joined here today with Nathan Kalman Lamb. Hi, Johanna. So we have a super exciting, um, not only episode, but week coming up and that this is swimming week, kind of like how we did gymnastics week. Um, that was such a cool thing that we did and really hit it off with a lot of you listeners that we thought that we do a swimming week as well. And because I have a very strong swimming background and just, I'm kind of like a nerd about it. Um, we just thought this would be a really, really great opportunity. And so to kick that off, we have the wonderful historian, Dr. Kevin Dawson with us today to talk about his his amazing book, which is titled Undercurrents of Power, and we talk about it a bit at the intro, and he really takes us through the entire book, which covers the 1400s through the 1800s, um, and we really cannot wait for you to hear him talk about the richness of African aquatics culture with swimming and surfing and canoeing and diving um, in West Africa and how that how they bring that over when they are captured and enslaved in the New World, um, and we really cannot wait for, to, for you to listen to it. Exactly. And look, look, folks, I mean, it's not a, it's not a coincidence that we're doing swimming week. Um, we have one of the foremost public scholars on the subject of swimming here as a co-host of this podcast. And it would be an absolute <laughs> travesty uh, if we did not give you the swimming content that you maybe even don't realize that you need. Uh, but you need it. Uh, and this episode is actually the perfect starting point because, like, honestly, there is a lot of public conversation about blackness and swimming. Um, and I think that most people in the United States have no concept of what that history is. Uh, this is a really eye-opening conversation. Now, I'm also going to do promo today, and here's what I'm going to tell you. First, of course, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, at End of Sport Pod. Uh, you know, we'd love to engage with you there. Um, check out our website. It's a good one. Derek did a lot of hard work there, and it looks good. Patreon. Right, You're, You want to donate to Patreon, we, we want to be able to bring you cancel college football t-shirts. Um, maybe we have some kind of catchphrase for swimming that you don't even realize that you need yet, but uh, that's definitely something that we could be working on. Uh, if you donate, if we have no money in the Patreon coffers, then we got no, no seed for that, uh, for that promo, for that merch project. So we need your help there. But here's the real thing I want to get to. Rating and reviewing on iTunes. Now, we've been asking you to rate and review us on iTunes, uh, and many of you have come through. And in fact, we have some absolutely lovely reviews there, written reviews, uh, and they are deeply appreciated. We also have some one-star reviews now to report. Um, now, we're going to treat that as a good sign because we're polemical uh, and we push a lot of buttons. Uh, I'm going to take that to mean that we have pushed some uh, pushed enough buttons out there in the world that people want to retaliate against us. Uh, and, you know, I, I know that that's true because I've been also getting nasty emails to my uh, institutional account and various uh, sport management profs trolling everything I put on Twitter. So, you know, like we're obviously doing something right. Um, but the bottom line is, if you like our podcast and you don't want it to get one star reviews, on iTunes, you got to balance that out. You got to dilute those one-star reviews with five-star reviews. We're counting on you for that, fans and friends. So please, that's that's my uh, overture to you. Uh, if you want this podcast not to go down, I don't even, I have no idea how iTunes algorithms work, but presumably if you get a bunch of one-star reviews, they somehow sabotage you and we don't want that to happen. Thank you. Thank you so much and enjoy the show.
Kevin Dawson is an associate professor of history at the University of California, Merced. His research interests include Atlantic history, early American history, and the African diaspora. His work, detailed in his fantastic book titled Undercurrents of Power, Aquatic Culture in the African Diaspora, explores the nature of swimming, surfing, diving, and canoeing culture in the Western coast and other parts of Africa prior to European colonization and once enslaved Africans were brought to the New World. Kevin, we are truly thrilled to have you with us today to kick off Swimming Week on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, so how have you been doing with the pandemic and the anti-racist uprisings in UC Merced, California? Um, it, it's been interesting. I mean, it's um, dealing with, the, uh, with well, first the pandemic, um, obviously kind of isolating people um, and pushing us in different directions. And then with with really the Black Lives Matter movement, um, in, in a lot of ways, springing out of the isolation. So the pandemic kind of forced us apart. Uh, and we began to think about in, in, the, in the late spring, how we could connect better with um, Zoom and other forms of, of social media. And then when that, as we were figuring that out, then you have uh, George Floyd's mur- murder. And it instantly sparked kind of, well, it changed the conversation, I think. Fundamentally, it changed the conversation on race um, in America. And it really, I think, crystallized and it really helped people. I, I think the, the, it was a, it's a special moment, if you will, after George Floyd's murder in that Americans, regardless of race, realized um, really what was going on in African-American communities and not just in communities that were kind of disparate um, and that might have been in rural areas or urban areas, um, but, you know, in universities, how black experiences were different than um, white experiences. And what I saw that's really heartening is that people came together and said, look, that, that we're not going to tolerate um, the sorts of discrimination that black and brown, black and brown people have been complaining about um, for years, and so it's it's gained the the, the pushback um, has been really significant. And there's we've had at, at UC Merced um, the momentum with us. I mean, we were able to draft in the week after George Floyd's murder uh, a We Charge anti blackness petition, uh, which mm-hmm. was presented to campus leaders, um, and it listed out um, about 15 grievances that students and faculty and staff have been complaining about uh, since the university opened in 2005. And campus leaders have been forced to be receptive to it because of um, just the way that the narrative has changed, that, that they can no longer just kind of ignore these things, that they have to actually engage with our, with our protest. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm thinking like to, to put together that statement in like a week. I mean, that's that's super impressive, just kind of knowing how long it can take sometimes to get people together um, to kind of put language together and agree on it can. I mean, for a lot, a lot of places, it took like a month or sometimes even longer than that. So that's really impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's been impressive and we're hoping that um, we'll, able, we'll be able to keep pushing forward, um, you know, hiring 
our, our student body is really diverse, but our faculty is not as diverse. And so we're pushing to diversify student body. Uh, we're pushing to actually abolish um, police departments across the University of California system um, and uh, hire more counselors, um, create more space. So while our university is diverse, um, there's not really a lot of space for students to meet and to, to socialize and to collaborate on their scholarship. And so we're, we're pushing for more kind of diversity or, or structures on campus that will facilitate greater uh, interactions of diversity. So it's not just kind of students that are, are present, which is good, but actually that they're engaging with each other. So students across, uh, you know, across the different schools, so across disciplines, um, and then also of across different racial, ethnic, um, religious um, backgrounds are able to, to 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 basically socialize with each other. Yeah, I mean, I really like, and I'm sure that also gives momentum, or I hope that gives momentum going into the fall, right? When like on the one hand, like we ha- we ha- sort of have all these um, aims for our campuses, just at the same time that they're being really cash strapped. So um, so why don't we go ahead um, and get and get going on, on some of these questions that we have? Because um, like I said, I'm just really excited to talk to you as a, as a longtime swimmer and a swim coach. And I have to say that when I came across your work about five or six years ago, um, and I know you've been publishing for longer than five or six years ago, but I really couldn't um, believe sort of what a historical intervention it really was. So your work is not only a real like intervention within the literature of what historians have written about swimming and aquatics culture, but it is such an intervention because it completely debunks the white racist myth about who can and cannot swim by really tracing this long deray historical lineage is really, um, and of course it's not just about swimming, it's about many, many other aquatics activities that require um, black and other people of color to be very comfortable in the water and to be able to have some level of sort of swimming uh, proficiency. Um, and you really do this so well by documenting how African and African diaspora people really use their aquatics, aquatic skills uh, before and after becoming enslaved and then sort of what happens when they're interacting um, with their um, slaveholders with indigenous people and other groups of people in, in, in what is now the U.S., and there really is just so much there. So this is really a long way of, of sort of telling our listeners, uh, please buy his book after you listen to our episode, Undercurrents of Power. We will be linking it below in the show notes because it is truly one of a kind and, and especially in this moment. And we're going to continue to kind of weave through the present moment throughout this um, interview. Um, but before we kind of dive into your work, uh, we thought it'd be great to hear about your background and personal connection to the water. Um, now, I understand that you swam and surfed competitively for many years in Southern California and even had a sponsorship for your swimming, which is, I'm sorry, for your surfing, which is really incredible. So could you sort of tell us a bit about these experiences and to what extent does this background shape your scholarly work? Yeah, so I I started swimming. Um, I mean, I should give recognition where it's due to the YMCA and to my mom, right? So the mommy and me at YMCA is where it kind of all started when I was, you know, maybe two months old. Um, and then just always at the beach in Southern California, everybody here, every other house has a backyard pool. And so there were lots of opportunities to just constantly be um, in the water. And so, yeah, I did. I, I swam competitively um, a bit when I was a kid. Um, 
and then I fell in love with with surfing. Um, you know, from a really early age, I, I I wanted to surf. I mean, maybe four or five years old, I wanted to surf, and so um, just learning to surf, teaching myself to surf at uh, oh, about nine years old, getting my surf first surfboard when I was I think eleven, and then just constantly at the beach, um, and for me that was really an, uh, important it being whether it was at a pool or at a beach, um, at lakes, at rivers. Um, to me, that was really important because later on, I realized that as historians, we oftentimes forget our own childhood and forget like the childhood lessons. And so for me, a lot of lessons, good and bad, took place at a beach. Um, you know, the first experience with racism, um, you know, winning surfing competitions, um, you know, just all of the fun I had, all of the activities that might have actually occurred, you know, if, I mean, I did play basketball. So like the same kind of social interactions you'll have on a basketball court also take place um, on a beach or at a pool. And so just realizing that, and then also I think really importantly realizing that, I mean, surfing is different than a lot of other sports in that it's not just a sport, but it's also a lot of other things. It's a lifestyle. It's its own culture. It has its own um, kind of pigeon language, if you will, because um, there's a lot of jargon and and expressions and things that are woven into it. Um, and they're not all English. I mean, they derive from a lot of different languages. And so having that understanding and then when I saw historical accounts of African people enslaved or in Africa, um, swimming and surfing and diving, um, and realizing also that there were these perceptions among white Americans and among African Americans that swimming is a kind of an unblack thing, or it's an activity that white people do. And there's these perceptions that um, black people's bones are denser than white people, and so therefore they're less likely to swim, or just all these other perceptions that about black people not wanting to swim. And so I understood that. And so then, as, as I said, as I encountered, um, documents, um, detailing, uh, people enslaved people swimming to freedom and not just swimming to freedom across a river, which might be a mile or so wide, but between Caribbean islands, which are several separated by several miles of water. Um, and, wow. and and these sorts of things, and just kind of the cultures that came out of that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what really kind of drew me into into this into this project. Amazing. Now, um, it seems like as part of your project, then to sort of demystify these kind of common sense racial understandings of aquatics that we have, especially in the United States. Uh, one of your biggest arguments is about how African communities were incredibly familiar with this aquatic sphere, uh, which I believe you've coined coastscapes well before European colonizers initiated the slave trade and the system of African enslavement in North and South America. Can you start by explaining to us what the water meant to those communities and in what ways they interacted and formed meaning with um, the water? Yeah. So one of the things, too, that, I mean, if you talk about kind of personal experiences, um, you know, and, and I'll come back to your question in just a second, but briefly, you know, when I was in college, when I was an undergrad anyway, um, a lot, uh, several professors made this argument, made a couple arguments that I just found hard to deal with or hard to, 
I found myself pushing back. And one was that we as as scholars or soon to be scholars, we shouldn't historians, I should say, we shouldn't be closely related to our topic, um, that that's going to make us biased. Uh, um, yes. And so I pushed back on that because I found that, you know, you know, that it actually gives you an insider perspective. The other thing that they said is that we already know everything there is to know about history. Like every topic in history has already been considered. And now all historians are doing is revising it, which I found both to be incredibly difficult to swallow. And so what I'm getting at is that, you know, Africans, we as as historians typically create binaries when we think of people existing on land or in the water. So like our histories tend to be that of agricultural societies, urban societies, and then mariners, fishermen, um, you know, seagoing merchants, whatever. But we forget that, you know, maritime people had lives ashore um, and that, you know, farmers, they might farm one portion of the year and then fish another part of the year. And so these interactions are, are exactly how Africans lived. I mean, Africans, they farmed part of the year, they fished another part of the year. If they were, you know, if you're a woman in Africa, you might, you would actually um, grow crops and women and men, but typically women would take crops short distances to weekly markets in canoes, um, whereas men were engaging in more long distance trade. And so both groups had these maritime experiences. People grew up next to you know, rivers. I mean, if you, if you look at the African map, it's just inundated with water. Um, you have rivers that are several miles wide and, you know, several hundred miles long. You have massive lakes, you have thousands of miles of coastline. And so people, they weren't living a terrestrial life or like a landbound life and a maritime life. Um, they were doing both. And so the other thing, kind of way that I came to understand this through my own experiences was as a surfer was, yeah, you surf, you spend a lot of time surfing out in the water, and then you come on the beach and you talk about surfing and other things on the beach. And I found when I was in Africa, among different ethnic groups, the Fanti and the Ahanta, particularly of Ghana, was these fishermen who are going out to sea in surf canoes, which are canoes that were designed to actually catch and ride waves back to shore. And so they're going out to sea, they're coming back to shore, and they're pulling their, their canoes up on the beach, and then they're congregating around their canoes the same way that people in California would congregate around lifeguard towers. Um, and so I could see these similarities and understood um, that there was no kind of a strict divide, um, that there weren't these binaries, that there was the blending of two um, and that as I looked at sources, the sources really um, reaffirmed uh, kind of these early assumptions that I had about how people were interacting with land and water at the same time. So one thing that I wanted to say is I really appreciate your statements about um, a like people saying that, like, we know all the history when like, obviously, that's not true, because there's always there are always new sources there are always always ways of understanding what a source is. So in that sense, like sources are always sort of being created and, and used in different ways, but also the, the like objectivity, subjectivity debate, you would really hope would be like beyond that uh, point by now. Um, but it's, it's clear how like your personal, your own relationship with the water really has like led you to this project in interesting ways, which is really cool. Um, 
And now I understand that you've also you've also done some comparative work looking at how some of these African peoples interacted with the water compared to, say, indigenous communities and Pacific Islanders and stuff like that. Um, so how did these different communities interactions with the water, to what extent were they similar and or different? Yeah. So, so one of the things that, um, the, one of the reasons why I began looking at primarily Oceania, which is made up of Melanesia, Micronesia, and Polynesia. Um, so I primarily began looking at that region. Um, but then also, uh, in Native Americans is that, the scholarship on Oceania is much more developed, or the scholarship on Oceanians' relationships with water is much more developed than it is in the Atlantic world. So the Atlantic world, or Atlantic historians tend to just um, think of maritime as being what, occur, what occurred on a ship, whereas Oceanians, um, following the, the lead of Tongan anthropologist Apele Hauafa, they said they looked at this kind of more holistic approach to how people um, swam and surfed and canoed and how they used water to connect land, that it wasn't just these pieces of land that were divided by water, but the water between islands was actually part of their social scape. It was a place of meaning and value in their lives. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's what really, I think, um, drew me into looking at how um, Oceanians and Indigenous Americans perceived and interacted with water. And so I think in a lot of ways, there are a lot of cultural similarities. And I don't, I, I should be clear that it's not, I'm not trying to say that these are like, I mean, because there's the older kind of racialized argument that that these are like tropical people and it's the tropics that produces this mm -hmm. environment or you know it's something kind of um hereditary or something like that um i don't see it in that way at all i i see it as these are people who live who lived on the ocean and um or along rivers along these waterscapes and so they saw water as being a way of expanding opportunities, um, of, of providing pleasure in their lives by swimming, by surfing, um, by diving underwater. It was a way it, they saw the ocean um, and rivers as economic resources. And so they're constantly engaging in it. They saw it as a way of connecting themselves to distant markets, to, to, to distant fisheries. Um, and so they saw it in those ways. Um, and so one way of, I guess, thinking of it differently is that compared to Europeans, the Europeans tended to treat the ocean as something that was dangerous, um, whereas indigenous people tended not to view the ocean as, um, as, as dangerous, but rather as, you know, this place um, that was filled with spiritual, uh, with spirits, with deities, um, both members of both communities saw the ocean as um, in, in Oceania and in Africa tended to have a belief that ancestors, um, you know, when they died, they lived at the bottom of the ocean. Um, and so there are a lot of similarities between the two, between the two groups. I mean, there's obviously a lot of differences even within Africa and even within Oceania, but you do, you can really see a lot of similarities in how they approach the ocean. Um, and, and had a lot of positive beliefs about it as opposed to um, kind of the Judeo-Christian 
perception that treated the ocean as this dangerous, um, uncivilized, savage space. Yeah. Okay. That's 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 really helpful. Um, so, kind of continuing then, your work shows how when European colonizers and enslavers first came across West Africans in the water, they were amazed by what they saw. What did they document in their writings about their observations? In other words, what were the differences in West African compared to European swimming practices in the 1400s? Yeah, so one of the things that they documented, and it, it actually, um, once I picked up on the pattern, it was, it was really helpful because you have Europeans um, coming obviously from Europe. And so the first people they're encountering were coastal Africans, um, usually out in the water, usually out fishing um, or engaged in maritime commerce, um, swimming, um, and as they got closer to land, surfing. And so they're documenting these things. And so they're really amazed by Africans' ability to um, to swim considerable distances. So sometimes Africans, like Africa um, has very few natural harbors. So ships would have to actually anchor um, two to three, sometimes five miles offshore. And then Africans would come back and forth between canoes. Sometimes they'd swim between ships and shores. So, you know, several miles back and forth. And so they were pressed by that. They were, Europeans came from a culture that had largely devalued swimming during the Middle Ages for different reasons. I mean, one of it was they believed that the body was porous. And if you immersed yourself in the water, that's what actually caught water would, would penetrate through your pores and it would disrupt um, the balance of liquid and solid in your body. And that's what was causing all the diseases. And so Europeans, consequently, that's why they bled people or they put leeches on people to let off that excess fluid. And so Africans didn't have these beliefs until they're swimming in a regular basis. And so Europeans were surprised um, by their swimming abilities. And it's not just that they swam, but they had different techniques. So Europeans, if they knew how to swim, it was more of a... um, kind of a a dog paddle, like a vertical or nearly vertical breaststroke. um, And that was about it. Um, They kept their heads above the water, whereas Africans had uh, developed, you know, the freestyle or the crawl. Um, They also were using the breaststroke. And so they were able to swim considerable distances really fast using um, the freestyle. They also had, were, were really proficient at free diving or basically diving with just the air in their lungs. So they could dive down, um, significant distances, 40, 50, 100 feet in some instances deep. And so what what Europeans would do oftentimes as Africans would come out in canoes or would swim out is they hadn't they they were coming across an aquatic culture that was unfamiliar to them. And so they do the same thing that you still see in a lot of tropical places where they would throw coins or scrap iron off of ships and watch as Africans would dive down um, to retrieve it with you know those objects being kind of the reward for it. And so Europeans also realized, you know, that they could benefit from these skills. So they're hiring Africans to scrape barnacles off of the hull of their ship. So actually diving under their ships, uh, you know, some of them could hold their breath um, two or three, sometimes even four minutes. um, And they're scraping barnacles off of their ships. They're diving to salvage goods off of ships that sank off the African coast um, and things like that. And so they, they came across a culture that was much different. Um, from theirs, and so they're documented in a lot of um, in a, in a lot of detail. Yeah, and you know, it se- it seems that it's it's pretty clear that sort of because of these cultural the difference in the cultural practices between these two groups that even if Europeans were not quite um, sure how they were able to do it, that they like from the beginning 
figured out like how can we I guess exploit or right how can, how can we get these African peoples to use their skills to our benefit like early on whether it's like scraping barnacles off or you know for entertainment that that seemed to be pretty early on kind of central to that relationship if I understand yeah. correctly yeah it, it definitely was I mean it, it became one I mean in Africa so yeah they are still hiring them um, typically to work I mean they're not enslaving Africans it, the, the the relationship the power dynamics wasn't such that Europeans could come in and simply enslave these people. I mean, they're having to buy Africans from other Africans. Um, but in Africa, yeah, they're very much hiring Africans to do these things. They're hiring Africans to dive down and to um, to, to basically harvest shellfish um, that could be eaten. Um, again, when their ships would sink, they'd hire them to salvage um, goods from their ships. Um, and so, yeah, in Africa, it is, you know, it, it's, they're looking, Europeans were looking for ways they could benefit, but they're, they're still being forced to pay for that, to pay for that skill. So sort of one question that I'm interested, you mentioned before how West African men, uh, women, sorry, would, would um, take some of their goods and take sort of short canoe rides to be able to sell yeah. them. Now, to what extent were they involved in like other water-based activities and interactions? Yeah, so women in Africa, um, they're doing they were doing the same thing as men. So the accounts are um, are almost. I mean, men and women, for the most part, in non-Islamic cultures, were swimming together. Now, most people swam nude, and so Africans didn't have stigmas about nudity. Um, they they didn't feel. I mean, Africa was hot, and so part of um, the the positive beliefs they had about semi-nudity and nudity had to do with just the heat. But what, importantly, Africans believed is that their bodies were gifts from their creator and that you shouldn't hide your this gift from the creator. And so instead of um, believing that, like as Europeans did, you should hide your nudeness, Africans believe that, no, this is something we should be proud of and that it's, it's, we had no problem, they had no problems displaying it. And so you oftentimes saw men and women um, swimming together in, in these accounts. So, you know, accounts talk about um, Africans, um, you know, swimming and surfing together, and these are men and women. Um, now, some things did become gendered. So you did have some types of, of fish that men would die for, um, or that, that were caught were caught by men. Um, so men would dive down and catch particular types of fish. Um, whereas women, it seems, um, their gender allowed them to harvest um, shellfish that are typically known as um, cowries. So cowrie shells were used as a form of currency. And so typically, um, it was only women that were diving down to harvest uh, cowrie shells that could then be strung together into these strands and used as currency. But for the most part, men and women are doing the same thing. It's only when enslaved people are taken out of Africa to Europe and to the Americas and then subjected to Western perceptions of gendered labor that women are no, were no longer allowed to do the same thing. So in the Americas, you have enslaved men serving as um, being forced to dive for pearls, being forced to work as salvage divers, um, as conch divers, um, as sponge divers. Um, but women were never allowed to do these things in, in the Americas or um, in Europe. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Well, 
I want to kind of pick up on that thread a little bit um, because so a moment ago you were describing um, the kind of some of the power dynamics that existed uh, in Africa. Um, and now I want to shift to kind of the process as we come um, once Europeans have begun enslaving Africans uh, and they've come to North America. The question is, how did African water practices influence um, their relationship or their power vis-a-vis -vis their European enslavers and slaveholders in North America? For example, your work explores the topic of enslaved resistance and slaveholders' continued exploitation that's centered on these aquatic skills. Yeah, so you can see it in a number of different ways. I mean, you can you can look at it, I think, in one way of enslaved people with these swimming abilities and saying, look, I'm just no longer going to be enslaved, and actually using their skill to swim to freedom, or taking... Um, what had been a surfboard um, in, say, a Caribbean island and using that to paddle from one island to another or to swim from one island to another or to swim from, say, Florida to the Bahamas. Um, so, there, I mean, there, or from Cuba to Florida or from Florida to Cuba. I mean, they're, they're engaging in these really long-distance swims or paddles um, on paddle boards um, or swimming across the Ohio River or swimming through swamps to elude uh, in the American South to elude capture. Um, so they're, they're, they are using swimming in that way to actually facilitate running away. But what they're also doing is they're using swimming and underwater diving as a way of negotiating, kind of resetting the, the powers, uh, the levers of power and saying, look, we have this skill that you need. And if you're not going to give us benefits, then you're just going to look at pearl oysters on the bottom of the ocean, or you're just going to look at a shipwreck, but you're not actually going to access it. And so that's where I, I really see them having a lot more um, power in this in these relationships, because what ends up happening is that, I mean, a, a kind of a succinct example is the Spanish end up taking gold and silver um, that they've stolen from indigenous Americans, amassing it in Cuba, and then once a year, they would send out these treasure fleets um, from Havana back to Spain. And these fleets oftentimes left Cuba from late August into early fall or into the fall, which is hurricane season. And so sometimes an entire fleet would sink. And the English and then Americans realized that they could send down enslaved divers to actually pull up this, these, this gold and silver and other valuable commodities. And so when English and American enslavers realized this, uh, realized where a ship was located, um, they could send down you know, a few divers who could actually strip a single ship of tons of gold and silver in a couple weeks. And so when you adjust for inflation, when you adjust, say, they're pulling up you know, 28, 30 tons, 36 tons of gold and silver, it, when, you, when you adjust for inflation, that's you're talking about several um, uh, billion dollars in gold and silver that they're pulling up, and so slaves realized that they're producing tremendous amounts of money for their owners, um, and for the colonies and for the empire, and so they're able to say, "Look, if you're gonna, if we're gonna produce this wealth for you, then you're gonna have to treat us like, basically, like um, wage laborers. You're gonna have to pay us." not just wage laborers, they're paid a wage. They're also paid a share. So, you know, for every hundred gold coins that they pulled up, they got one coin. Um, 
You're going to have to treat our enslaved wives and children better. Um, and so they, they began to demand all sorts of things um, for the, the expertise that they had and the, and the wealth and capital um, that that expertise, expertise could produce in really short periods of time. Wow. So there's really a, a lot that's um, incredibly eye-opening in what you said in, in terms of the centrality, really, of this, uh, these sort of aquatic customs at this time. The thing I really had to follow up on, though, because, you know, my, my eyes popped a little bit when, when you were speaking, how common was the use of, you know, like swimming uh, and diving as a form of escape from slavery? Because, you, I mean, you gave a number of different examples, and that's certainly not something that, I ha- that had ever occurred to me. Um, and it's like, I-, I find that really remarkable. Is this something that happened with... You know, I mean, not, obviously not with great frequency, but like, was it kind of a notable mode of escape? Yeah, it, it was a pretty significant um, form of escape. And so, um, yeah, especially in the Caribbean. And, and what begins to happen is that, you know, so as the Caribbean, as, as development on one island might make, so as it might make the conditions of slavery more harsh enslaved people might actually run away to another island where slavery still existed because prior to the early 1800s, slavery existed really everywhere in the Americas. So at first they're escaping and trying to blend in as kind of free black people because there were small free black populations. So they might escape from say Jamaica to Cuba or Jamaica to Puerto Rico or the Danish West Indies to the English West Indies and pass themselves off as a free black person in one of these colonies or they might even go from, you know, Jamaica um, in the early 1800s to Cuba or Puerto Rico, um, which in the late 1700s still had a milder form of slavery, um, and you know become enslaved there. But then what begins to happen is that colonies throughout the Caribbean um, began to abolish slavery, and so the English abolished slavery in 1836, and so once they abolished slavery the English islands become these magnets for runaways. And so you see a sharp increase in the number of, of enslaved people freeing from Spanish, Danish, Dutch, um, French islands um, to these English islands. And so they are, they, they began to flee in really significant numbers. Sometimes an entire plantation would literally get in, a, in canoes um, and in the water and swim to freedom and, uh, and uh, a planter would go bankrupt basically overnight. Wow. I mean, you're just, you're just painting this really vivid image for us of sort of like the agency that like being able to swim really, really afforded people. I mean, really on like a life or death scale, which is really amazing. And of course it's also showing how much enslaved people understood and wanted to understand about not necessarily about the world around them, right? But they were actively seeking out information about where where they might possibly be able to go, which which colonies, which which European powers had abolished slavery, where might they actually be able to have a life, right? So you're showing that they have an awareness of sort of global forms of colonialism around them, which is really which is really fascinating, and I think something that you know I don't study the history of colonialism or slavery specifically, so it's not something that like immediately pops mm-hmm. in my head. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I think that's um, fantastic. Um, now I have so many follow ups. I'm trying to sort of think about which direction to go to. Um, I I do have one kind of small comment, and that you were saying how when 
um, these ships would 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 sink, and then um, the enslaved swimmers and divers would like go and, and essentially find what was left on the ships. That it reaped these enormous rewards, like enormous when you're talking about inflation and how that might equate to present day amounts. And of course, like in my head, that immediately like the immediate connection to like how college football players make money today for the yeah. universities. Like again, like just reaping like millions and bill- billions of dollars. That was just like a connection I made. Um, but I was so, I'm sort of, I'm curious, you know, to what extent do you like, how far forward do you see, um, these, these practices sort of continue? Is it something where like the first generation of like enslaved Africans that they are still, you know, they still have these skills that they had when they were taken and, or do they pass them down to like future generations of, 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 of their, like their enslaved progeny? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I see it very much as, um, as skills that are being passed down. And so, I mean, one of the things is like you, so you definitely see accounts of, um, I mean, in the Americas, they're mostly written by enslavers or by European travelers or by travelers from the North going to, um, you know, a slaveholding region, whether it's the South or the Caribbean or Latin America. Um, but they're talking about, you know, uh, and also uh, it's important to note that there weren't a lot of hotels. So quite often as people are traveling around, they're staying at plantations. So as elite men and women are traveling around, they're getting introductions to, to planters and the places that they're going to, and they're staying at their plantations. And as they're going there, they're coming from societies that had very few black people. Um, and so everything is new and kind of exciting to them. They'd never been to tropical or semi-tropical regions. They hadn't had a lot of interactions with people of African descent. And so they really are good documenters of of the cultural practices of enslaved people. Um, you also have a number of enslaved people documenting um, after they obtained their freedom, their cultural practices. And so you definitely see these accounts where, um, or evidence, I should say, of parents teaching their children how to swim at a very early age. So they're learning to swim, not quite as young as in Africa, where in Africa, the accounts are they're, they're, they're swimming shortly after they're weaned or after they learn to walk. And so it's roughly like a year to um, 16 months. Um, in the Americas, they seem to have been learning to swim at about two years of age um, and to have been really proficient by the time they're four, five, and six. And so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, these are definitely skills that are being passed down. Um, and then also I should ima- I should note that, you know, at, at, in some ways it's hard to, to gauge what skills are being passed down to subsequent generations and what skills are being introduced by or through the Atlantic slave trade, right? Because the Atlantic slave trade is constantly pumping enslaved Africans into the Americas. Um, and so in, in the United States, it's only 1807 that the Atlantic slave trade is abolished. But we know that they're passing down, uh, that parents were passing down swimming and underwater diving skills to their children because we see accounts of enslaved people in America being really strong swimmers in the 1850s, 1860s, um, and then beyond. So there is a lot of kind of direct evidence, um, you know, people observing or recording, um, you know, in the case of, of previous enslaved people, documenting that, hey, my parents taught me to swim when I was this old. Um, so you have a lot of that kind of evidence, but then also just kind of the less direct evidence of the consequence of having been taught to swim. 
Absolutely. That's, that's fascinating. And, you know, when you were explaining how, um, of course, they're continuing to bring new enslaved Africans over for some reason that just like hadn't popped in my head before. So like, thank you for making that connection so clear, clear for us. And, you know, one other thing when I was reading your work that I, I just, I hadn't again, thought to thought to put together was this, um, part about how, um, the parts of Africa, right. So when enslavers were like brace, bringing African or t- stealing and then taking Africans captive. They were looking for people with specific skills related to rice production. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. So, yeah. So they're looking for skills, lots of different skills, right? I mean, they're, they're, they understood that, I mean, first of all, Europeans um, were coming from societies that were not tropical and they're colonizing parts of the Americas that were, tropical and semi-tropical, and they realized that they could reduce the learning curve um, by exploiting Africans' ability to produce tropical crops. Um, so things that would be exotic, um, chocolate, um, coffee, uh, tea, um, indigo, which is a blue dye, um, and then also rice. And so rice is this skill that was um, widely held in what's called the Senegambia or the Greater Senegambia, which is primarily Senegal, today the, mod- the, the countries of Senegal and the Gambia. Um, and so they, they brought these skills, enslaved Africans brought these skills to, well, to, to different parts of the country um, and to the Americas, but they bring it, they primarily introduce it into South Carolina and Louisiana. And at first they're using rice they're producing rice in their free time to provide themselves with, you know, the taste of home. And then enslavers realized that, um, you know, rice was an exotic commodity in Europe in the 1700s, and they could make a lot of money um, by shipping rice back to Europe. And so they began to produce rice on a really industrial scale in South Carolina, making South Carolina uh, the wealthiest colony and state in the United States up to the Civil War. And and from what I understand correctly about that is that because of like this focus on rice and, and wanting enslaved Africans who knew how to work and work within the climate and kind of cultivate rice, that they, the, the, how do I say this, that, that these were also the same people that had a lot of skills in the water. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So rice cultivation in um, the Senegambia, it, it's actually a tidal rice. Um, it, it's produced through basically harvesting the ocean, which I think also illustrates in a really important way Africans' understanding of the ocean. Because what they're doing what they did is they would build these huge levees around what would be a rice field. And in order to irrigate the field, they'd construct um well irrigation ca- canals and then also floodgates that could be opened and shut. And so what they would do is they'd let the high tide, as the tide is rising and pushing up these, it would actually reverse the direction of tidal rivers. Um, so rivers that had been flowing from inland to the sea as the tide is going inland are now being, the direction is being switched. And they realized that they could actually use this rising tide to push fresh water um, into their rice field. So they're not wanting salt water in there, which would kill the rice, but that they could actually use fresh water um, use this this current to push fresh water into their fields. And so they had these really intimate understandings of the ocean um, and they swam. I mean, these are regions um, like one, the, the Gambia River is something like, I, I, 
I believe it's like 15 miles wide. And so it's this huge waterscape where people are swimming um, and canoeing um, and, and also surfing. I mean, they're surfing on surfboards off the Gambian coast, off the coast of Senegal. Um, and so, yeah, they had this rich aquatic tradition. And so they're enslaving them for South Carolinians were enslaving them primarily to produce rice. And then as um, kind of a bonus, they're getting these aquatic skills. So we're going to switch tactics a little bit where we're going to kind of pick on pick up on something that you mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, and so in an earlier episode with Kelly Wright, who is a historical sociologist, historical sociolinguist, amongst other things, and she discussed how today sports commentators and media outlets often employ linguistic racialization in their discussions of black and other athletes of color. And I really found it striking in your work that you do the same work and do it really, really excellently um, by analyzing the terms the white Europeans and American slave owner, slaveholders use to describe and compare African aquatic abilities to what uh, they themselves, they being white, could do in the water. Um, so if you could walk us through an example from your work on this, um, I think that would just be really, really interesting to hear about. Yeah. It, and so it's, it is, um, it, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, I mean, to set this up a little bit, cause yeah, you have Europeans and they're coming from, um, I mean, particularly if we're, we're talking about America, um, you know, English, and they assumed that they're the most civilized, sophisticated people on earth. And that they did everything the, the correct way, you know, whether it was from dress to eating to to houses and all these sorts of things, architecture. Um, so they, there's this assumption that everything they did was superior to what other people did. And so what ends up happening is that as they leave England, they come across people who can actually do things better than them. And so Africans provided uh, uh, people of African descent provide these really clear examples of how they're much better in the water. Um, whether it's swimming on the surface or diving deep below the water. And so Europe, the, the English then um, and Americans end up having to racialize that, having to explain it away that, um, yeah, they can do this better than us, but it's because of these kind of innate um, abilities. And so what they end up doing is saying, yeah, they can they can swim better than us, but it's because they're savage and animalistic. Um, one of the other things that they were really surprised by is that Africans engaged in a, what I've kind of labeled um, aquatic forms of blood sport. So basically diving into the water to fight marine creatures, um, sharks, crocodiles, alligators, hippopotamuses, um, manatee, manta ray. I mean, not all of those things are dangerous, but at least from the European perception, they were incredibly dangerous. And so, you know, when they see an African leap in South Carolina, for example, see an African leap onto the back of a manta ray in order to plunge a harpoon into it and then swim away, um, there's no way that they could say, that's a better man than I am. Or when they see an African dive into the water and kill a crocodile with a knife, I mean, the immediate response, I mean, Europeans, especially with crocodiles, they perceived crocodiles and alligators early on as um, as dragons. Now, oftentimes the descriptions are that these are like, you know, 30 foot long creatures and they're very much in the description like a, 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 a dragon. And so when an African dives into the water and kills the equivalent of a dragon, this is now in the European context, somebody who's chivalrous, who's like a knight, who's deserving of honor and glory and things like that. 
And then they realized that, wait, if we say, if we set up these Africans that way, if we say that these are, that these men are brave, are noble, um, and things like that, then that puts our, um, from the European perspective, their kind of emerging ideas of race that are used to justify enslavement into question. And so they have to walk that back and say, well, no, they are doing these things, but they're not really brave. Like what they're actually exhibiting is kind of an instinct, like a lion or a tiger. Like for them, bravery required morals and virtues and values. But though what Africans are doing, it's more animalistic. It's just an instinct. Again, like a mother, lion or wolf defending its child. And yeah, they can swim really well, but that's just because they're animalistic and animals know how to swim instinctively, whereas human beings don't. And so they have to begin to like portray Africans um, animalistically, um, which is also problematic because at the same time they're portraying Africans, their aquatic abilities as being animalistic they're having to, they're forced to recognize Africans' humanity because, well, so many enslavers are raping so many enslaved women and they're procreating with them. And so they realize that, you know, species could only recreate with the same species. Um, and so this creates like kind of all of these problems um, for them. And they're in some ways able to explain them away, at least in their own mind, by saying that, okay, yeah, Africans are are human beings, but they're savages. They're less sophisticated. Um, they're more animalistic um, than Europeans. Um, so it's it's balancing this kind of yeah. These can they can do things that we that we can't. Um, but yeah, we can still deserve. We still deserve to be able to enslave them. Wow. I mean, on the one hand, it's like fascinating. I mean, it's absolutely horrible, of course. And it's, you know, it's, it's an, it's something else to sort of listen to you explain the like mental gymnastics, for lack of a better phrase, that, that they like slaveholders were, were going through in order to, to, to like make sense and within their own sort of Western frame of reference, um, how to understand these skills. Um, so thank you so much for laying laying that out. And um, relatedly, now you've talked a little bit about your sources, but as a historian, I, I'm always really fascinated to kind of see what people are working with. Um, now, I'm curious, you mentioned this a little bit, but if you could talk a little bit more about the sources that you use and sort of the, the challenges to, to define and analyze them, especially because a lot of them, at least for like sort of the early part of your work, were written and produced by white colonizers and slaveholders. Um, you did mention that some of them were produced by freed, freed uh, blacks later on, but I would just love to hear more about that. Yeah, so definitely, um, you know, it, that is a challenge, trying to, to document um, early swimming techniques while giving Africans and enslaved people a voice um, because they're not able to produce. I mean, very often, rarely, I should say, do you have kind of black voices um, in in the narrative. I mean, sometimes they're being documented in court records um, or um, you know other accounts, but it's typically being written by a white person. So there's always this kind of white filter to the sources. And so that is problematic, um, and I recognize that. But I think at the same time, in a lot of ways, I do trust the sources because I think Europeans, I mean, what they're doing, I think one of the things that's important 
for recognizing European authored sources, especially travel accounts, is that they are actually trying to document real things. So they're trying, what they're doing is they're going and they're trying to document kind of the resources that, that are in Africa. You know, that they have this wealth here, um, whether it's, you know, in timber or um, gold or silver or ivory or, you know, enslaved people or knowledge. They're trying to document all of these sorts of things and convey it back to Europeans so that they could exploit African knowledge and African resources. Um, Now, oftentimes when they're doing it, they're wrapping it in racialized language. And so you have to, I think, well, you do have to at times peel away that racialized language to really understand what's going on. Um, But then I think also it's really telling the racialized language. It, It can be really telling because it can tell you what Europeans are afraid of. Um, when they're describing Africans. Um, And so in in some ways, um, it it can be really important for understanding European perceptions of Africans and why they're trying to exploit, um, you know, African swimming abilities. It's because they're afraid of the water. Um, And so uh, Europeans, that that is, are afraid of the water. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was something um that i had to really struggle with is that you i had to rely on european authored sources um but at the same time i mean so one of the ways that i i tried to push back on that is that you have europeans treating africans um i mean in some ways not as a monolith because europeans recognized ethnicity but they're treating people they're they're not oftentimes providing names and things like that of of people um and being providing in some ways superficial accounts of of things that I would have liked to have a lot more detail like but what I try to do to bring kind of the humanity into it and to to give africans um their agency is to provide as much kind of biographical information as I could about the people so while you know a european might be talking about an african um you know he might say oh i was at this place um and I saw this African do this really incredible, you know, dive down um, 30 feet below the water and he stayed submerged so long that I thought he had actually drowned himself. So he doesn't give the ethnicity of the person or other kinds of details. But what I could do then is, you know, when he, because the European is providing geographical information, I can go back and kind of flesh this out and provide some humanity by identifying the person's ethnicity um, and these other sorts of things. Um, that that make him or her a person and not just kind of the object of a description. Wow, yeah. Th- thank you for that. That was a really, um, you know, fascinating tour through the, the work of a historian, really. Um, and actually, I have to say, I really want to go back now to something that you were talking about um, just a couple of minutes ago, because, uh, you know, I'm not a historian myself. Um, I, I'm more of a sociologist. And so, you know, I was struck when you were talking about the classic racist tropes for, you know, black people as animalistic, right? This way in which the the sort of justification that Europeans um, came up with for like why, um, 
these Africans had this superior ability to, you know, in terms of various aspects of aquatic culture, uh, i.e. skills they had cultivated, um, you know, and then they give it this, this totally racist gloss by thinking of it as um, an inherent capacity of their animalistic bodies. Well, that's exactly the, exa- that's the exact same trope we see today, right, in terms of the way in which black athletes continue to be racialized in the mainstream media, um, you know, everywhere. Right. So it's not surprising to hear you describe that in in the aquatic culture. But, you know, what is surprising is that or perhaps is or is not. So that's really the question, ultimately, is that we don't really see that so much with swimming in aquatic culture today. Right. That seems to be a change where once we had this trope of black people being viewed that way in the United States. Now we have this situation where swimming is drastic, seemingly drastically reduced in black American communities and disassociated with black culture in terms of the popular cultural imagination of the U.S. writ large. Um, I'm really curious to hear what happened. Why is that? Yeah, and that's really important, too. That I mean, th- this this perception, uh, like this shift where black people are really strong swimmers, um, to all of a sudden, they're not. And let me just actually maybe flesh this out a little bit. I mean, so it's it's... Whenever I would see accounts of like a boat sinking or a shipwreck, the outcome became really predictable um, as I would read the account. It was that if a boat sank and there were so many black people on it, they all lived and the white people all drowned unless the black people saved them. I mean, that's always what happened. Um, and and it, it happened with such regularity that Africans actually began to say that there were spiritual in uh, kind of explanations for it that white people were offending water deities and the water deities were actually killing white people um, as a result of it um, and so in some ways it's it was I mean it was the complete opposite and and Africans were looking for kind of cultural explanations for why white people were drowning. Um, one of the other things that they actually began to come up with, like Africans actually began to theorize, was that white people were almost like fishing lures. So they would fall into the water and their skin must shimmer in the water. Um, and I'm using that quote unquote because this is what a, an African actually said to a, a European in Sierra Leone, that their skin shimmered in the water and sharks would, would rush in then and actually uh, grab the Europeans and pull them down. Um, and that's why they never resurfaced. And so Africans were looking for these kind of cultural explanations for why, um, Europeans were drowning at such high rates, um, in Africa. And the same thing is playing out in the Americas, um, you know, whether it's the Caribbean or, or in the American South. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you see this, this shift though, actually happening, I think as a, for a number of different reasons. So one of the shifts is in relationship to work. So as long as Europeans were, before Europeans and, and well, before Westerners developed kind of modern diving gear, I mean, first the dive helmet, um, they relied on Africans and indigenous people to do any kind of underwater work, to send them down as um, basically as free divers with the air in their lungs to harvest conch or shellfish or to salvage goods. Once they have technology on their side, then they no longer need Africans. And they, the belief was that, you know, technology is this, you know, you have technology, which is the production of modernity um, and civilization and sophistication. And Africans are these kind of brutish 
uncivilized people. And so you can't actually put a savage in a diving helmet. It's incongruent. I mean, you technically could, but it's it. To, the perception of it is incongruent. It's this mixture of the modern and the savage. So you can't do it. Um, and so this forces begins to force black people out of these occupations um, in the late 1800s. Um, in the Bahamas and Bermuda and the Caribbean, they begin to f- be forced out of it, out of, out of occupational diving. And then what you, what begins to happen in the American South is that swimming actually becomes, not just the South, I should say, but in America, is that in the 1880s, 1890s, swimming began to become a recreational activity. And so, at, well, actually, before it really became a recreational activity, it was a means of hygiene. So in the 1880s, 1890s, cities began to build swimming pools as a way for people to cleanse themselves. And so the pools at that time, they were segregated, but they were segregated by gender. So you'd have men, regardless of race, going into one pool, and then women, regardless of race, going into another pool. And then beginning in about um, 1910, 1915, I mean, it's a gradual process, um, people began, white Americans began to say, look, this is something we can do as a form of recreation. We can go as a family to these swimming pools and we can recreate on at these pools on the weekend. It doesn't just have to be about going into the water to wash off the, the kind of the week's filth, but we can go and we can have fun with our family members. And so then what they began to do is to, to segregate pools by race. And so what that in essence meant was that most pools, I mean, there were going to be very few pools that were built for people of color. Um, so you might have 20 pools in the city, city built for white people and one that was built for black people. Um, in California, what they did is they, would, they, didn't, they didn't follow that same practice because um, California didn't have the same kind of legal segregation. Um, but what they would do is the pool would be open um, for white people. Um, during the week and on Saturday, and then Sunday would be known as Color People Day or International Day, um, and the pools weren't filtered, so by Sunday the water was really filthy and, and nasty, and so that was the day that um, Asian Americans, um, Latinx, um, African Americans would go and use the pool, and then it would be drained Sunday night and Monday, and then refilled and ready for use um, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday um, for white people. And so this, what this did is it discouraged black people from swimming in municipal swimming pools or there just weren't swimming pools for them. And then you also had um, kind of more insidiously racialized violence occurring along natural waterways. So beaches, lakes, rivers um, that had been places of black recreation in the 1800s, white people began to use those as, see those, I should say, as places for um, recreation. And so they began to use racialized violence to force black people off of those waterways. Um, and sometimes they would use actually lynchings um, and other forms of racialized violence, murders um, to force black people off. Um, so the, the, the 1919 Chicago race riot is an example of this where a black um, youth, and I forget, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he actually drifted unintentionally from a black beach into a white beach and then he was pelted to death with rocks um, and bricks and it resulted in a week-long 
riot, um, and basically the closing then of, of um, black beaches or many of the black beaches, um, and the bodies of lynching victims, um, most famously um, Emmett Till, were thrown into waterways um, where black people had recreated, and this made these waterways um, kind of taboo places to swim. And so you see really the rise of kind of white beach culture um, forcing black people off of beach culture and making it um, more difficult uh, for black people to learn how to swim. And so consequently, you know, by the, I don't even know, the 1920s, 1930s, um, relatively few black people were proficient swimmers um, and there was a disproportionately high rate of, of drowning death um, in African-American communities as a result of um, this racialized violence and segregation. There's this en- enormous like shift, at least in terms of like access and like comfort, like black Americans comfort with going to pools, you know, rivers, places like that, places to swim, right. That all of like these centuries of these traditions mm-hmm. just sort of, you know, I don't know, made, made negligent because of all this racism, which is really interesting. And, you know, and I, one comment that you made earlier was that um, swimming sort of became a white and sort of an unblack or non-black thing. And, and so is this, is this how this happens within this short kind of 40 to 50 year period? And then obviously throughout the, the rest of the 20th century, is that part of what you're talking about? Yeah. So you, you definitely see, I mean, during this period of the early 1900s, yeah, black people being forced out of um, urban public pools, um, and then, um, rural, um, beaches and water, waterscapes. Um, and so, yeah, you, you definitely see that happening. And then kind of interestingly, I mean, so it's, it's really, I would argue kind of segregation and and racism that forces black people off of these areas out of these, these waters. Um, but then what begins to happen in the 1960s, early 1960s is that black people began to come up with cultural understandings, black people and white people. Um, and so what black people began to kind of theorize and argue was that um, that they didn't swim as a result of slavery and the slave trade, that the slave trade kind of created this generations of trauma um, that caught, discouraged black people from going on the water, um, or that enslavers used um, water as a means of torture. Um, which there are some examples of of enslavers kind of simulating drownings and things like that to discourage people from um, enslaved people from learning how to swim um, or to punish them for other offenses. Um, but that's not really widespread. And even as they're using these forms of torture um, and punishment, um, enslaved people were still swimming. But African Americans began to, to to kind of make logic and sense of it by saying, well, it's the trauma of the slave trade and slavery that has forced us to um, stop swimming. Um, and at the same time, white Americans began to come up with um, kind of uh, physiological differences and say, well, it's because black people are less buoyant um, that's causing them to drown. So they're looking for kind of a, a scapegoat that, that, that is able, that allows white Americans to say that, no, these drowning death rates are not a result of us, of our racism, but are a result of innate differences. Um, that black people, again, are, are, you know, their bones are heavier and things like that, which I think also, I mean, we started off talking a little bit about Black Lives Matter, but it, it also, I think, is this kind of important intersection because I remember 
back in the late, it was in the late 1980s, 1990s, and excuse me for jumping here, but people began to push back against, Americans began to criticize the police use of the chokehold um, and saying that, look, you're you're killing large numbers of, of African-Americans with a chokehold. And the police responded and said, well, no, it's because of physiological differences. We're actually using the same chokehold on white Americans and black Americans with the same amount of force and everything like that. But black Americans, black people's windpipes are different. And so that's what's causing them to die um, at at disproportionately higher rates of drowning. And, and I, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, um, Spike Lee's uh, movie, Do the Right Thing, is, is making a reference at this um, kind of use of, of, of racialized police violence um, kind of in the same way, along the same lines, right? Of, well, it's not really American racism that's causing people to die from police chokeholds or from drowning. It's that they're just physiologically different. This is um, really a powerful intervention that you're making. And I think you've, you know, so um, methodically now shared with us and listeners um, why your project is so important. Uh, You've walked us through this incredible history uh, that explains how central aquatic culture was for West Africans and for enslaved people, Um, these incredible skills that have been developed over time and that were used in all these really um, remarkable ways, even under the most incredible constraints, right, to to produce whatever power was possible in those unbelievably coercive circumstances. And then you've also walked us through how horrifically through just pure violence, pure unadulterated violence, uh, those skills, that culture was killed to a certain extent, really, by white America as part of a white supremacist segregationist project, right, to seize power back um, after the Reconstruction era. Um, And that's produced the moment we have today and what you've talked about, the 80s, 90s, and the present moment, where once again, we then have this reemergence of a discourse that essentially blames Black people for having a, some kind of deficiency when it comes to aquatic culture, swimming, etc. right? Like, so this innate, this, so this notion of like, um, you know, the some essential characteristic being the explanation. It's back before that explanation was the animalistic, you know, like hyper swimming black body. And now it's the like incompetent black body. And through your history, right. That's how you make the absolutely, um, you know, unimpeachable case for how this happened. And, And what I'm trying to say, the reason I'm going on about this is this is, not just an academic intervention, right? This is a really important intervention into how we all in this society understand the role of aquatic cultures and race. So I would love for you to share with us um, if you've done any work in terms of public scholarship to try to sort of disseminate in that sense um, and to kind of reach beyond an academic audience, because I think this research needs to go um, beyond an academic audience, and um, maybe like what are the opportunities and challenges that come from that kind of public engagement for you? Yeah, well, I think just doing this interview is a way of, of getting it out there, and so that's why I was really excited when you when you guys reached out to me and asked me to be part of this because it's it's I don't see my scholarship as being 
I mean, many historians will, and I'm not trying to set historians up as straw men here, but they'll see their historian, their their scholarship as kind of laying out like colonizing that scholarship. This is theirs. This is their. This is their claim to fame. Um, and so I do see that. I mean, I recognize that you know I've gotten out ahead of people in this swimming scholarship, but it's it has I think this much broader public consequences that I could have never imagined. And so I I think that having laid out these, you, you know, kind of the, the the origins of African swimming and how they, they differed from kind of white swimming um, is important for pushing back against these perceptions. And what I've really done then is, I mean, to, to kind of more directly answer the question is, go out and work with groups that are promoting swimming and also surfing, like really an appreciation for aquatics. Um, And I'll team up and I'll go out and I'll give talks. Um, I've published um, a number of like kind of short pamphlets that could be used for for teaching elementary school and middle school kids about um, African and uh, enslaved swimming traditions as a way of pushing back on a few things. One is pushing back against this notion, I think really importantly, because it has pragmatic consequences of swimming, or not pragmatic, but real world consequences of swimming being unblack and saying, look, this is, swimming has been black for as long as, you know, there's been black people. Um, I mean, I know that's an overstatement, but look, this is, this is a, a cultural heritage that you should be um, embracing. And not just embracing kind of the history, but actually getting in the water and learning how to swim in order to reduce these drowning death rates. The other thing I'm trying to do in giving these talks is to shift the narrative and say that slavery, yes, slavery brought us here, but we should not be ashamed of our past. That the narrative that we've been giving, given in school that is that slaves were nothing more than kind of manual labors. They were nothing more than substitutes for, you know, livestock is not at all true. That Africans were enslaved, yes, for their labor, but also for their minds and for their wisdom. And the, the, the profits, um, the capital, the wealth that that wisdom could produce. And so I'm trying to push it in, in, a, in a number of different directions as I'm going out and giving talks. And it's not just to black kids either or, or teenagers, youth. Um, I mean, quite often it's, it's um, I mean, it actually is always um, multiracial. I mean, it's giving talks to kids of and, and uh, to teachers of, of, you know, all different races and backgrounds. Um, and trying to to get them to recognize that um, if we approach slavery different, that yeah, we should as a country be ashamed of it, but we should not see it as a stigma that's passed down to generations of people. Yeah, and that also that it, like it doesn't have to be the end game, right? That like be, because of this history that the debunks the the these like racist myths and is like sort of veiled the history of segregation, white supremacy, right? That like, it can sort of be, it can be, I don't want to say countered, but you know, that there is like an opening there for um, black and and white Americans to sort of like do better, sort of whatever that, that looks like. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking too, you know, when even in like 
Well, I guess we'll get to this topic later. Um, I feel like a lot of the history that's told about um, like Black Americans and swimming really focuses on like segregation. But I mean, your history is so important because as you and as Nathan was just saying, like it is such an intervention of showing like centuries. I mean, centuries of this extremely rich and vibrant aquatics culture of it being tied to their sense of identity and community and sort of who they were as as families and as individuals, um, really showing that this history existed. Um, and I just think this is like an absolutely vital part of the story that like needs to be included in, you know, all of these um, sort of public histories about pool segregation, things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and and, you know, this leads to my next question, next question, which I'm going to get really excited about, um, because when I saw this video, I was totally like freaking out and nerding out. And I was like texting Nathan and Derek, like, holy cow, this is amazing um, as a swimmer and a sport historian. And it was um, in July 2020. So just last month, um, Paralympian Jamal Hill created an Instagram TV uh, video for the U.S. Master Swimming account about the history of African swimming traditions. And I should say, we're going to be interviewing Jamal Hill in a few short weeks as part of Swimming Week. So we'll, we'll certainly be asking him about this. Um, and, you know, this is a short, I want to say it's like a 25 minute video, somewhere around that. But he, the whole time he's holding up your book and like, not even just like holding it askance, but like showing viewers the cover of your book um, and really explaining the arguments that you make about African diaspora aquatics. Um, and just like really breaking it down um, to viewers. And to me, I thought this is really powerful. And so I would love to hear what you thought about, like, what do you think his purpose was in explaining the, this history? And also like you personally, like what did this video, what does this sort of thing mean to you as, as the author, as a surfer, you know, someone who's obviously very involved in, in the water? Yeah, I mean, that was a, a really... Um kind of great moment. I think you sent me the video. That was the first time I had ever seen it. <laughs> and so to see it, um, I, I was totally blown away because I was like, wait, what is this? And he he starts talking and I'm, I, I mean, I was incredibly just blown away by his um, enthusiasm and um, that, that he got it in such like a kind of a nuanced way and I sent it out to a bunch of friends um who are historians and they everybody had was so impressed by Jamal his way of of thoroughly understanding the book um and then conveying it back I mean basically teaching my book and doing so in 20 minutes I mean it was just <laughs> super impressive and 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 making these public connections on why it's important for African Americans to understand, you know, our swimming tradition, that it, that this is something that we should be, you know, proud of. Um, we should embrace our our connections with the water um, and with swimming and and all of these sorts of things. I mean, it was it was. Um, it, it, I always have a hard time kind of watching myself or watching people talk about me. So, in that one hand, it was a little bit uncomfortable, um, but it was also, I think, really. Um, humbling and telling to just to, to see him um just his sheer enthusiasm for it and that he actually got so inspired and to, to go out and make that that um tv video um and and to to use the book exactly how i've i've wanted it to be used as as a means for not just understanding history but also understanding the present 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I, that is really a, an exciting thing. Whenever you see something like when you can see your academic work uh, kind of filtering into the world in that way, it's amazing. Um, so you really you should I feel like you should be proud of that because that, that shows the, the impact that you're having. And kind of on that note, in terms of making an impact, uh, I want to ask you a question, which I'll, I'll be honest, it's not, it's not a very fair question. It's the kind of question that I can't stand getting myself because I, I tend to be big one for critique uh, and not as big a one for kind of answers or solutions or whatever else, especially when what you have been pointing to here is a history of it's like a history of centuries. Um, and then in the more recent than the last centuries, uh, a history of, you know, systematic um, destruction of cult, of a culture through violence and also through the structural configuration of U.S. society, which has, you know, in myriad ways, systematically destroyed access for Black people to the kind of goods uh, of U.S. society. And one of those is swimming, right? And just like that, you know, the disgusting example, you, you said at the time when you were describing it to us, you were kind of like, um, you know, there's the example of this sort of Sunday swimming pool uh, with the dirty water that uh, that non-white people were subjected to, um, but that was like that was like the not so harsh example. The harsh example is like the the full-fledged and horrific violence, like lynching, that people were subjected to. And, and obviously, those are not the same. But like the truth is, let's not minimize the first example either, right? Which is really disgusting in terms of how people were treated. Um, and so just all of, of this makes it clear to me, like it, the barriers of what I'm trying to get at, the barriers then for black people today that have been constructed over this time um, are immense. And the configuration of U.S. society continues to make it exceptionally difficult for that kind of access and culture to be reinvigorated. So what I'm trying to build to here is. Do you see, like, obviously your work is part of a project, right? Of course, to push back and intervene in this history, clearly. And it is inherently. Um, but then if you were to, and, and so like, to, just to, 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 to the sheer fact of explaining to people and revealing this history definitely has an impact on, let's say, an understanding for Black people of their own relationship, potentially, to the water and to aquatics, and also to white people as people who, ha who have to own a history of being, barriers to that and to have just having destroyed that culture those two things matter immensely but then there's still the structural dimension right like that's kind of like an ideological dimension but then structurally speaking how do we get to a place where aquatics can again become the kind of part of black communities and cultures in the united states that they were and that they should be yeah, that's all. I mean, that is a harder question or a harder answer to come by. I mean, I think, I, I think in some ways, um, African Americans are coming to that on their own. I mean, they're saying they're recognizing. I think increasingly, um, we're recognizing that this is part of our cultural heritage and this is something that that we want to reclaim. And so, um, there is this this deliberate willful uh intent to um learn to swim um to learn to surf to learn you know to get into the water to become scuba divers um and things like that like i see that a lot now um so there is that on the one hand i think the bigger i, I, I mean i think the thing <clears throat> that maybe america should do i mean we talk about I mean, and, and your question is kind of get into this, like, 
kind of, well, or at least suggesting, um, um, sorry, I'm forgetting the, ter- the term, um, reparations. So it, it's kind of suggesting reparations. And so what could reparations look like? And it's been kind of thrown around like, okay, we could give so many, you know, people, African-Americans so much money or whatever, which isn't really going to do anything. I mean, unless the, the country is able to give African-Americans, you know, $100,000 each, you know, $10,000, $20,000 isn't going to do much. Um, so what are the sorts of things that could be done? And so one of the things I would argue is just developing swim programs. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that I've worked with at some universities is to develop, you know, they, a lot of times in the summer universities, they have their pools for their swim teams and they'll rent them out uh, to different organizations or they'll have their own uh, swim uh, team members give out swim lessons or provide swim lessons for a fee. And so what if we um, paired up with different organizations or if the university has just offered free lessons to, um, you know, to, to African-American kids or to, you know, to black and brown kids? Because um, the, the problems plaguing, I mean, it's important to recognize that this disproportionately high drowning death rate is not, well, African-Americans are more, are, are more likely to are, have the highest rate of drowning. Um, that Latinx um, and Native American kids also have a di- really disproportionately high rates of drowning. And so what can we as a country do to, to kind of solve these structural, uh, the, these problems brought about by structural racism? And so one of the things is to just provide swim lessons at pools. And there's different kinds of swim lessons that are provided. There's ones that are just designed to teach kids, if you fall in a pool, you can do this so you don't drown. Um, and so they're not as in-depth. But then there's also the ones that actually you know, teach them how to actually swim, teach them strokes and things like that. It's a week or two week long program where they're teaching, again, swim lessons, or there's different surfing organizations that are providing surf lessons to kids who already know how to swim. You know, they're taking kids from YMCAs and, and different, um, you, you know, uh, community groups and church groups and bringing them down to beaches and, and giving them, you know, a day at the beach and they're learning and we're teaching them how to surf, which I've participated in that. And so just these sorts of things, I think are things that Americans, you know, as a country, we should be thinking about doing, but then also just organizations can be doing it um, and should be doing it. Um, And some are, I mean, USA um, swimming is doing it. The surf rider foundation is providing some, some funds has provided funds at least to do it. Um, Hurley, which is a you know major surf company. They've provided funds to do it. I've participated in programs where Hurley's sent out professional surfers, and they've worked with you know kids at Santa Monica, so uh, teaching them how to surf. So there's you know there are ways that we can do this, um, and it's not I think as incredibly difficult as people might think, um, and it also is incredibly rewarding to get out there in, in the water and to and to you know to interact with with people that we you might not have interacted with before. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I know Johanna has a question in a second, but I, I just wanted to add because, you know, my, my own daughter is only four years old and before the pandemic, she was involved in uh, all kinds of community center programs and so forth because um, we live in the city of Durham, North Carolina. Um, and Durham is, uh, I mean, I don't know the breakdown, but Durham is a very significantly black city. Um, and the, uh, 
so like the community center programs, which my daughter participates, like that's the only kind of programming she does is through the community centers in Durham. And they're pretty robust programs. I mean, I'm really pleased with what they're able to offer and they're incredibly accessible. Like I, I grew up in Toronto, Ontario, and like the costs that we see for the programs in Durham are infinitely more accessible than they were in Toronto. And that's partly because of a, a, just a fundamentally redistributive municipal politics here in Durham, right? Like it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's because people have been consciously fighting to um, make these kind of programs accessible. Um, politicians have been running on these kind of platforms. And, and that's where the tax base goes in Durham. It goes to uh, these kind of programs. And this is something like, well, the reason I'm pointing this out is simply to say, that's not actually hard to do, right? Like that's not some kind of yeah. massive sea change where we have to convince like Trumpist voters to favor reparations, right? Which seems like a tall order at this moment. Um, but like, this is something on a local level that people can be working towards. Uh, and, you know, I see it happening there and it's, it's exciting to see that kind of change because yeah, those kids are, those, those classes are filled with kids um, from all different communities in Durham and like they're learning to swim. It's not just like being, not being afraid of the water. Like they are learning how to swim and they're loving it. Uh, it's exciting to yeah. me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, I have sort of one last question and then, and then we'll let you go. Cause you've just been so generous with your time with us. Um, and so you, Team USA, uh, which is part of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee structure, came out with a really eye-opening piece just a few weeks ago in early August 2020, um, and it was titled The Deep End, and it's about the history of anti-Black exclusion from American swimming pools and what Black swimmers are doing today to combat it. Um, and I'll be honest, I came across it um, again on Instagram. I guess I'm just on Instagram all the time or something. Um, and they their their IG post was was really really beautiful, and it included a very brief timeline and some great pictures and quotes by decorated black swimmers such as Simone Manuel, Colin Jones, Jamal Hill, and others. Um, and I was just curious, you know, what are your thoughts on this kind of endeavor, sort of coming from an organization such as Team USA? And, you know, to what extent do you think this kind of piece adequately tackles sort of our ingrained racism within the sport, kind of knowing the history that you do? Um, you know, so I, I've seen that piece as well. And I, I, I do definitely appreciate what they what they're doing. Um, I mean, they I mean, to be perfectly honest, I mean, I can see that they're drawing from my scholarship in some of it, which is totally fine. Um, and on the one hand, I, I do like it. I mean, I, I think that it is significant um, what they're doing. Um, I mean, they've been offering, USA Swimming has offered funding um, through its foundation, which I'm forgetting the name of right now. I apologize. Um, make a splash, I think, is if I'm remembering correctly. So they do offer mm -hmm. money um, for swim programs in, in kind of underserved, um, communities. Um, the, the, I see them though, kind of missing it and it might be because it's Instagram, but I think the problem with kind of what's some of what has been going on in, in the ways that like say USA swimming, and I'm not trying to pick on them and it, and I'm not being, I, I'm, I hope I'm not coming across heavy handed is that they're not fully understanding kind of the conversation at the grassroots level, if you will. So they're saying there aren't a lot of black swimmers. Um, we need to make a change and definitely commend, commending them on that. And they're constructing this history. Um, I, I think though, 
that the history they're presenting is kind of flat. Um, Mm -hmm. And that the reason why I think they're not getting it, and I don't know who created it, but like if they, they should have just turned it over quite honestly to Jamal. Like I think (laughs) it looks beautiful, but what they're laying out is, um, and these have been conversations that I've been having now. I mean, because I've been doing this this kind of public facing work since two thousand and five or six or so, is that too often the approach that's been taken is almost like kind of trivia. Like, look, here's black people mm-hmm. swimming at these different points of time, um, and they're showing this history, um, oftentimes documenting a rich history, which is good. The problem, I think, or what where I think they're missing the mark is that it's two things going on, in, at least as far as how African Americans are seeing it and, and can be convinced to swim. And one of them is to show, one of the ways is to show, yes, African Americans have this African history of swimming. And so African Americans have responded to that in different ways. I mean, they might say that that will pique people, a lot of people's interest. Um, but that might not be enough to get people in the water. What has, I think, been um, a, a, a more powerful motivator to, and what you guys have both kind of mentioned, d- described here is that it's not just, oh, this is a history. This is not just kind of bullet points on a map, uh, on a timeline rather, but this is a reclaiming. This is a rebirth of history. Mm-hmm. This is history that has been deliberately kind of, you know, our our bodies were stolen from Africa, brought to America. Our culture, in many ways, has been appropriated by America. Um, and this is a way for us to take back our culture. Um, and that's where I think USA Swimming is missing the mark. And that this is a way. This is a, a rebirth, a reimagining, a rethinking of. African American swimming. Absolutely, that is totally spot on. Um, I think you not only explained it like eloquently and perfectly, but I think you're absolutely right. Is it's not just like oh, there's a history here, but like this is a history here for you to sort of like own, and, yeah. and sort of like re- recreate within your own families and future generations. Um, so I think that was just that was just fantastic, and you know what what a way to end uh, a really wonderful interview um Kevin thank you so so much for all of your time and like talking about your work with us um this was definitely i know for me you know as as i've said before as a swimmer as a sport historian this just was like such an exciting conversation for me and i just i learned so much from your work so thank you so much for for sharing it with us and sort of walking us through that process yeah, yeah, you're welcome, and and thank you for the opportunity. Because I mean, again, it's it's I think it's much bigger than just my scholarship. I mean, it's about you know getting people in the water, reducing drowning death rates, um, and so I really appreciate um, you furthering that cause. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.